There are so many things that we live to in terms of standards today that actually aren't part of real happiness. Happiness is actually inside each and every one of us right now. And so the advice that I have is just press pause, just breathe. You don't need to see what someone else is sharing right now. You don't need to define your life about what someone else is doing right now because I can tell you 100% that they are incredibly unhappy and unsatisfied with their life as well and that we're all just trying to figure this out. And the minute you connect with that, it's empowering and it's life-changing. And once you breathe that in and once you indulge it and once you give yourself permission to keep taking another step down that path, it's contagious and you start to change how other people see you and then how other people see themselves. And the minute that happens, we've got a community. And the minute that community gets bigger, we have a movement. And the minute that we have a movement, we have a life, a society that is going to not just get this planet back on track, but get everything in a place for our children and their children in ways that define what the future looks like and not have to live it based on standards that are outdated. This episode is brought to you by WeWork. Finally, there's a space that works the way I do. WeWork's got just about every size office and space to fit your needs. For example, there's the new media and entertainment locations that are wired and ready for your next big creative project. From soundproofed editing rooms to state-of-the-art screening spots, their multimedia-ready spaces have you covered from pilot to wrap. And if you're in Southern California like me, there are five new WeWork locations in Orange County alone, close to the beach with some of the most collaborative communities you'll find. Book a tour at a location near you by going to WeWork.com. Now let's get into our episode. Hey everybody, my name is Brian Solis. I am Principal Analyst at Altimeter Group, also a futurist there, digital anthropologist, and the author of LifeScale. You are watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with best-selling author Brian Solis. Brian, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's great to be here. How, how did you get here? I mean, this has been a journey for you. Um, you're a digital anthropologist and now dedicated writer and speaker, but you know, you're multifaceted. So how did you get here? All right, so it was an Alaska air flight from Silicon Valley. I left San Francisco airport, but before that, I, look, so I have a, a bunch of lives, and a lot of it started here in Southern California, got me to Silicon Valley because I wanted to be in tech. Uh, that was 1996, uh, and long story short, I ended up becoming a digital analyst to study all of these disruptive technology trends because I needed to make sense of them. Uh, at the time, technology moved a lot slower. Uh, because of its acceleration of trying to study its impact on markets and businesses and, and industries, I also became a digital anthropologist. And that was to study the impact on people in any setting, so students, customers, employees, uh, to understand technology's effects on societies, norms, values, beliefs. And somewhere along the way, those two things really started to make sense. I could create bridges through research reports, through books, through speeches, really trying to humanize what was happening. Because I think a lot of times we glamorize the tech a lot, uh, and we try to find solutions in the tech. But in actuality, the solutions lie in humanity. And give us some context. So what, who were those reports for? What was the application? What who used those and found them? Still valuable. trying to figure that out. To be honest Come with on, you, don't be humble. <laughs> the, there, it, the reports were written for executives to help them yeah. make decisions about the future of their of their companies, uh, or investors or startups to help them figure out market opportunities against the businesses who were a little bit slower to react. But along the way, I realized that essentially we were all just trying to get the same answers. Uh, so whatever capacity you work in. Uh, there's a need for this type of insight so that you can bring more value in your role to your organization because a lot of people have blinders on yeah. and certainly a lot of cognitive devices prevent them from seeing what's actually happening. So I ended up finding a voice to reach more and more people, greater audiences, and ultimately over time I just started writing for literally anyone who would listen. Well, and also let's put a timestamp on this too. So you talked about 1996, the internet's literally one year old, one year old. Um, ramping up into the dot-com bust era, post-era, up into really the birth of social media, how digital evolved into social, where I remember back in the day when 
what was Twitter launched what, 2007-ish? Six, yeah. Six, seven. The iPhone 1 is out for the first time. People are beginning to discover this thing called social. Uh, and you were really active on Twitter, um, getting you know the word out, microblogging, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but you were kind of a prolific writer blogger at that time too, right? Yeah, I think my first book came out before all of that stuff. Uh, and thanks to things like friend feed, uh, Facebook, early social networks. But before that, too, was Web2 was sort of the precursor to social media. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of platforms that we were all building. We were all sharing. It was just, it was a really, it was like the 60s, but in a digital era. We yeah. were all just sharing. It was free knowledge, free love. And that's how that whole community started, which is why a lot of us still know each other, because it was just this amazing digital community in the real world. Yeah. And I'm laying that groundwork because I want people to know how old I am. <laughs> yes. But also how, I mean, it's this arc, right? And it's still arcing. Um, or there's several mini arcs within the larger arc. Um, and, you know, when I mentioned earlier that I think each one of your books has been sort of a, a rediscovery or a reset or, um, I mean, it's just some authors follow a path, but you've just had this unique way of finding... Um, like the pulse of what's happening and addressing it in a very relevant book. You know, I think about um, Engage. I think about uh, you know, uh, the business, uh, business as... The you, end of business. The end of business as usual. Sorry, I hatcheted it. I butchered that. Um, I think about um, X, you know, really about user experience um, and now this new book. So... I want to leave that groundwork a little bit just so that people know that you've come from, you know, the very beginning of this uh, and are seeing it through so you have this kind of credibility, this hindsight. I want to know a little bit about LifeScale and why you wrote it, who you wrote it for. Kind of break it down for us. Yeah, so just give me a minute uh, to kind of explain this one because even, even I have a hard time explaining them. What, we're, what, we're, what I'm essentially answering is the question of why did your life change so dramatically? Uh, because the book is just a physical manifestation of that. I was trying to follow up a book. My last book was called X, Experience When Business Meets Design. And it was really exploring a really abstract concept of trying to design experiences. So when we talk about the word experience, we kind of overlook what it really means and experience is a it's actually an emotion you feel it it's 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 this moment and it's how you react to that moment that sort of defines how you're going to remember that experience and so I wanted to translate that into designing that into products and services and support and just every aspect of physical and digital that your brand is the experience that you design the experience that people have and the experience that people share so we should design that and not leave it to chance and so I thought oh man you know I'm going to design the book to be a physical experience so that I'm bringing to life the, the tenets of the book itself. I studied user experience, user interface design on mobile devices and applied those insights to paper, so essentially creating an analog app. And I used that book as sort of this, this physical idea of what a textbook should be for high school students and, and also elementary school students who have to use textbooks still, even though their brains do not in any way, shape, or form fire in a linear format. So that, and I share that to give you context of just this massive platform I was coming off of. And so I felt like when that book hit, for some strange reason, I thought it was abstract, but it hit really well. And it's still, it's still doing really well, thankfully, because it's been three and a half years since it's been out. And I felt like there was going to be a time as a speaker, it's sort of like as, a, as an artist, you need an album if you want to tour. And so I needed a new book. And I had a million ideas. And one of them was about innovation and, and that, personal, that personal spark that always happens before the big idea. And so I thought that was going to be the book that was going to transcend this next platform. Like I just wanted to, I just wanted to keep growing and keep sharing. The more I shared my work with people, the more... The more I live in a cave, basically, whether it's a plane or behind a computer, I, I just got to see the impact of the work, and I wanted to take it further and further and further. So I thought about writing a proposal. The first time I, I was going to write a formal proposal, and I got stuck. It went through edits after edits after edits. I had, a, I had to hire uh, a developmental editor. I'd never had to do that before. And they just kept coming back with things like, well, this isn't clear. This isn't making sense. 
And after a while, I just completely got frustrated with it. I, I, I just shelved it. It was a total of six months, which is ridiculous for a proposal. I mean, I could have probably finished the book. And that's, that's when I, I started to realize that there was something wrong. I started to kind of reflect, and I looked at my research reports that I had been publishing. Those had gone through numerous edits as well. The, the creative spark that I usually tried to have, like, for example, designing X and becoming an analog app, just kind of wasn't there. I was checking the boxes and moving along and sort of riding this momentum that had got me there. And long story short, I needed, I needed a break. Uh, I started to realize that it wasn't just the book or the reports that were going through some challenges, that my entire life was sort of this Instagram feed, uh, that my relationships, my friendships, my, my children, it's just everything, everything seemed much more superficial uh, than I think I really acknowledged. I mean, that's, that's amazing, that self-awareness, that reflection. Um, so what did you learn from it? Well, it, it, you say it's amazing. I, I will say, and honestly, it was a super dark period of, of time. I mean, it was, I was defeated. I was starting to awaken to the fact that I just wasn't who I thought I was, uh, especially as a writer and as a speaker. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's, that's my job. Yeah. Uh, and you have, you have constantly the need to compete against all of these new voices and all of these great new talents that are constantly coming up. And everybody, everybody is, is smart and far more talented in what their capabilities are these days, especially with all of, all of the new platforms. But I knew that something was wrong, and at the heart of it wasn't just this lack of creativity or this loss of creativity or this loss of presence with everybody that was important to me. I also really started to find that there were, there were just other aspects of, of this that were resembling things like addiction. Like, uh, like what? Like, so impatience, uh, frustration, uh, a whole bunch of other things that I probably won't air out loud, but just, you know, not unlike any other addiction that you might have that, that you, you, you realize the symptoms before you realize the problem. So I started studying what was behind that. And I spent a good year really digging into, uh, I had a lot of access because of Silicon Valley and a lot of the, I helped launch a lot of these, these networks and apps that we all use today. So I had a lot of access to people who really started to share a lot of the secrets behind the designs of the apps and the, and the devices that we use today. And then started playing that out and playing that out and playing that out and realizing that exactly what had happened to me was that was by design. And so what did that look like? That, that was a loss of attention. That was a loss of creativity. That was sort of ascribing to this lifestyle that was uh, all about likes and all about instant valid validation and yeah. instant dopamine and oxytocin and all kinds of things that were making me feel good in the moment and never, ever really being in the moment. Can you share with us any of the insights that you learned from the people at Instagram or Facebook or uh, these companies that shall remain unmentioned? But like, uh, how, how are we being duped? Like, how are we being tricked? What's, you know, what's so, sort of their, uh, the science behind uh, keeping us on platform and, and you know, this FOMO, right? People talk a lot about FOMO, fear of missing out, which is, you know, this addiction. Uh, it seems like an addiction as well. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, I promise this whole conversation won't be so depressing. But it's good, it's good that we know what's happening because this, there, there is, because I'm not, I want to be really clear before I answer this question. I am not saying that we need to unplug. I'm not saying that we need to delete everything and that we need to go back to the way things were. I'm not saying plug your, your uh, landlines back in. Uh, it's to the contrary. There is, we, I am not putting my phone away. I'm just using it much more mindfully now. Well, it's a really good point because I think some of us, like you, we fall into this habit of checking our feed every five seconds or email every three seconds you know i get those phantom um <laughs> you know like vibration in my pocket i think my phone's there and then it's not and i'm like what is happening to me <laughs> it's like so weird um but yeah and, and so 
we're talking about this as if we all know what's happening, but some maybe this is new for some people who are like, "Oh my gosh, it's happening to me! I didn't know it." I didn't know I I, I didn't know I had a problem, yeah. right? Until I failed, and that was an epic fail. So the type of failure that had to be resolved. It yeah. wasn't just like, "Oops," you know, and then you continue on with life. So I'll I'll tell you some of the things that they're doing. So there's a guy we can name him because he's he's sort of now an official whistleblower to the whole thing. His name is Tristan Harris, and Tristan has now started an organization called the Center for um, Human Design, or basically it's not the right name, but the whole point is about getting getting other developers to realize that there's a better, more ethical way to design apps and services. But this stuff goes back to gaming; it's, it's all over the place. Uh, it's a lot of it's called persuasive design, and it's intentionally designed to manipulate your behavior. Uh, if you think about social networks, for example. The fact that it's a free service, the, the commodity that they exchange is the attention span, right? So the more of our attention they have, the more that they can sell. And the more that we go down rabbit holes or the more that we feel the need to pick up our phone, uh, the, the more that they're able to monetize that. And the worst thing that had happened to us as a society is when all of those companies started to go public because then they had to answer to shareholders and the markets and putting more and more pressure on delivering that revenue. So what what they do uh, is, for example, if you've ever opened up Instagram or Twitter, you'll notice there's always like a millisecond before you see how many new notifications you have. And in that millisecond, that's designed to create anxiety. And when you're when that's creating anxiety to see how many new things you have, your body's releasing up to six different chemicals. Uh, and there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of winning when you see that you have new updates. Uh, and that's based on what's called variable intermittent rewards, which was borrowed from the design of slot machines. Uh, and it's essentially you're, you're feeding your body these chemicals, and then you feel that sensation of relief that, oh, you're validated. You know, a lot of this is sub subconscious uh, that, you, that you matter. Uh, a, lo a whole lot of a whole lot of personal reactions that we have, but what happens is every time those chemicals are released, it's exactly like using drugs. Your body starts to crave it more and more and more without you even knowing it. So that's why you reach for your phone. That's why you, that's why you share anything and everything because you want your body wants those reactions, uh, and then psychologically and emotionally you do too. So you start to catch up with it. So it's literally transforming you, and they're doing that by design. There's a whole bunch of other tricks that they use, and it goes really deep. And there's a, there's a guy in Silicon, uh, not Silicon Valley, Santa Monica right now, who's taking this this to the to the neural pathways now. So now they're using AI to figure out, and this, these are his words. They're, they're building a platform for the next generation apps and the next generation social networks to juice you using AI to keep you more and more stimulated into these apps. And so my, after, after I stumbled into all of this research and, then I, and, I, and I had a chance to follow Tristan Harris's work, I was so, so, so inspired to do something about it. But I couldn't do anything about it until I fixed my life because it was still broken. I still couldn't focus the way I, I needed to. I still had the attention span of a gnat. And at the same time, as I was becoming more and more aware, there was no real solution. You know, and I, I other did, than unplugging or getting off the grid. Right. Well that's yeah. what if you <laughs> I did what probably anybody else would do, which was Google it. And <laughs> you know, the, the typical response is were to do anything from you know download Calm or Headspace to uh, turn off notifications, unplug, go to digital detox, practice these digital diets, go outside, try hiking, practice meditation, maybe go to yoga, practice mindfulness. I mean, all of these things that were are helpful. Yeah, common uh, sense. Yeah, common sense, but helpful. But they're all treating the symptoms. And so, where the big wow moment came from uh, was when I really started to recognize and look. Uh, I feel like I have to be completely honest with you because otherwise there's otherwise I feel like a charlatan behind the book which is the problem starts with our device usage. Everything after that is how we make decisions about our life, how we parent, how we love, how we how we how we friend, how we live uh, and in that whole journey of my life I had recognized that I had made really horrible decisions. 
all based on the center of reference as if I was that person online and not this person here in the moment. And I, the, the, big, the big awakening for me was recognizing that my center of reference for life and decision making had moved. Had moved so far into this whole new territory all because of this life online that I was living. That when I was in the real world, it's like that movie Ready Player One. It's like it wasn't, I wasn't the same person anymore, but I was still making decisions like that person. And that's when I recognized that I was hurting a lot of people. It's so funny you say that because I think that's a really subtle, excellent advice without going deep into your methods. But, you know, I, how many of us behave like an avatar, you know, online as if there's no consequences, as, as if we can say whatever we want, you know, be more whatever, you know, less kind or more abrasive or more outgoing, you know, if you're an introvert like me, um, that avatar experience gives you a chance to, to be a different personality if you allow it to be, right? Yeah, well, you think about it, uh, it's one of the, the more I studied, the, the same techniques that go into persuasive design are the same techniques that go into fake news and why we believe fake news. And so it's, the whole science behind it is incredible. And I, I joke, but it's, so, it's, it's, it's true. Uh, the, I, the great poet Ice-T once said that part of the problem with all of us on social media is that we, uh, we say things without getting punched in the mouth. And the, the idea of that is that we, we start to become this person online that we feel this sense of pressure to keep up with it. And actually what happens over time is that anxiety builds. Uh, it, it leads into all kinds of things like low self-esteem, self-confidence. Uh, it, it flirts with depression and oftentimes hits depression. Uh, but what was, what was really important about all of these things is that I had recognized that nobody gave us the manual for how to live life with access to all this stuff, right? Like, so, Everyone in this room is probably an expert food photographer now, right? Uh, if you look at all of your friends on Facebook, everybody in the last 24 hours has at some point in their life has been to Paris and they're sharing all of their Notre Dame photos. All of, everybody, everybody is now everything to everyone. And there was no manual for that. There was, our parents didn't teach us for that. Our teachers didn't teach us about that. And so we're all trying to figure this out but without knowing what we're trying to figure out. So what should we be figuring out? <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book because I needed it. I wrote a book that helped me get that center of reference back. And so the book itself actually just starts with a lot of these, these challenges. But it's not, a, it's not a book on these issues throughout the whole thing. It's actually a book about what would you do differently. And it actually takes you on, it's called Life Scale because it's a journey. Uh, that asks you to get back to who you were, but then more importantly, who you could and can be now that you know. And so it's about, it's about reinventing yourself. And real quick, because I know it's a long answer, uh, I used... I had to give it a purpose, and that purpose wasn't just about finding yourself, because there's a million self-help books, and each, each one is, is valuable in their own way. I wanted to use, because we live in an era of AI and machine learning and all kinds of crazy tech that's in front of us, I wanted to use creativity as my muse. So how do we, how do we become more creative? in a time where everybody thinks that they're original, individual, and creative, so that we can be our best selves and so that we can create value and, and shape this world in a much more positive and much more beautiful way now that we're aware and awake and intentional. And, and I'm sure that you wrote this from a very personal point of view, but you know, a lot of people who watch this show and are probably in this audience also, you know, they're managing brands, they have their own businesses, uh, maybe they're entrepreneurs or freelancers. Um, can we also, does this apply to them too? If they're, you know, if they're at the wheel of their brand and they're trying to figure out how to steer this thing away from the rocks or, you know, in, into the uh, sunset, does this also apply? It applies, it applies to anything uh, and everything. Uh, but what it's meant to do first is get you in touch with you, uh, not the idea of you. Right, so that you can build a better you in the real world of which then extends online however you want. When you have that insight, and it's awakening, 
man. And it's and it's a wonder. It's 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 like the Matrix when you just bust out of the pod and you're just alive. It is. It you can you cannot see the world the same way anymore. And you see all kinds of opportunities to add value or to to fix things or build things. Uh, and why that's important is because you recognize, for example, as, as a brand or as an entrepreneur, that there's so much value that you can add when you know that everybody is anxious or stressed or running so fast or, for example, multitasking. We're not multitasking. We're actually switching this neurochemical switch in our brain that's sending, flooding our bodies with all kinds of stuff just to get that task done but not great. When you recognize all of these things, and I could go on for hours on all the things that are happening to us, you realize that there's a lot of value to add. There's a lot of help to provide. So if you're creating products, if you're creating services, if you're upgrading touch points, if you're marketing, all of these things can now send a different message, send relief, send help, send hope, all kinds of things that we're just sort of missing today because we're trying to compete for the moment. We're trying to be louder than everybody else. We're trying to be faster than everybody else and trying to be more witty and have that moment where then everybody's going to forget it in 15 seconds. So let's unpack it a little bit. Let's. I want to analyze the book in and ask about the order of operations. Like, so did you write it as a kind of a sequence, or is it one of those books that you can jump from chapter to chapter and it doesn't matter the order? Tell me how deliberate or non-deliberate you were about the order of operations. This one is uh, deliberate. Uh, and it was both intentional in its writing and also uh, I was so fired up after I finished writing it. I wrote 100,000 words. It was only supposed to be 50, and because I didn't want to stop the journey, it was just such an incredible experience. So that I went back, and then told the publisher, "This I have a pattern of doing this with the publisher. I, I need the book back. I want to design it." Uh, and so we turned the book into essentially what's like shoots and ladders or Candyland. So there's a journey. Uh, that you go through, and each step is very intentional. Mm -hmm. First, you learn the tools to help you focus for more than 30 seconds. You go through and you find things like your values and your purpose. And essentially, it's all designed to take you in these iterative steps, but to, to be super transparent, I think somewhere in the first page or two, it says, by the way, you're reading a book that is going to help you grow your life and help you be happier, creative, and more productive. Uh, but I don't actually know what the next page is going to say yet. <laughs> and, uh, but the promise was is that every time you turn the page, I would have figured it out. And so I went through all this incredible research uh, and all these incredible experiments to figure out what was it, what was actually going to work. And, and there was a lot that didn't work. I'll tell you that a lot of a lot of things that we ascribe to a lot of trends that do not work for the long term. Okay, I know everyone's probably thinking what I'm thinking. I want to get really specific. Like, can you tell me some of these? Uh, specific tactics or things that I should do? No. No. That's, that's, that's the lazy way out. Okay. The whole book is a journey. Okay. And, and the, entire, the entire book is designed to help you. You go through every chapter is a, single, is a single word. And it's meant to show you what you're going to do in each of those chapters. But none of them are independent. They all build on one another. And they really start with getting to know who you've become. Not who you are, but who you've become. So that then you can now go backwards and start building on very core basic principles that we have forgotten and that we have really started to uh, believe in our aspirational selfie. Uh, and so it's a very methodical approach to bringing yourself not even back to where you are, but in a much better place. So what are some of the things that we don't know we don't know? I, I, think, the biggest, I think the biggest one is actually that how do you sell a book to people don't realize that they're dis distracted or that they're, they're struggling with something uh, that's actually in their pocket right now? And the first few pages are, are jaw-dropping. Uh, we, we have a mutual friend of ours who read the book and sent me, a, sent me a note that basically said, I had no effing idea and I regret the day I bought effing iPhones for my kids. Right. Right. Well, it, and it might feel like an indictment, right? Like, I'm in big trouble. We are in big trouble. And, and our kids who don't know any better are in big trouble uh, because they're, they're now, they're born with a habit. And that habit is 
chemical and it's emotional and it's physical. And there isn't anyone on the other side of that nurturing them through that, right? So they're learning how to live codependent lives on not just digital, but the idea of what it means to matter in a digital and a physical world, right? Yeah. And all of which, not even a lot of psychiatrists or psychologists are trained to ha handle this. And this is all brand new stuff. So what is your advice? What do yeah. we do? Well, a lot of it is you don't know what you don't know until you know it, right? And so what I wanted to, I'm a parent, so I wanted to learn first how to fix my life, right? Because a lot of times parents are part of the problem in two ways. One is that they push this technology on their kids as a means of sort of keeping them busy so that parents can find relief in whatever they have to do. The second way that they're part of the problem is that they, I have pictures of when I take my kids to the playground of parents on their phones while their kids are running around and that, that is also a show of demonstration of how not to live life. And then you have teachers who are now f having fun with experimentations of how many notifications kids get in the classroom and doing all these experiments. But that's just shining the light on the fact that everybody has this codependency problem. So what we have to do as parents, as teachers, as mentors, as managers is first fix our own life because there's a, I can't tell you how There's so much weight that comes off your shoulders once you realize all of the things that have been done to us uh, and that we take control and that we start to live a much more mindful and intentional life. You don't even have to put the book in your kid's hands at that point. There's just so many things that as a parent, instinct really just kicks in of finding new ways to reframe how they use technology in their life, to help them verbally, like like a... like like a therapist, understanding what they're going through on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can guide their lives. So I'll give you an example. One of the, one of the projects I did as a, as a digital anthropologist was for a global beauty company. And so it's a luxurious brand we all know. But the CEO, the global CEO, wanted to know what was happening to beauty because he had noticed that there's no possible way to keep up with all of the beauty trends these days. And that they were still creating products and marketing products the way that they, they had always done. So they wanted to know, what does beauty mean in an era of Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and all of these things? And so I interviewed women from the age of six to 61 for a year. It's heartbreaking. The just. I wasn't even an anthropologist anymore. I was a therapist. The minute I started asking questions and hearing this, the, the anxiety, the self-esteem, the self-confidence, the beauty issues, the just the depressions, the cutting, like all kinds of just incredible, incredible stories. And at some point, almost every person that I was interviewing figured out that I'm asking these questions because there must be something going on that they hadn't realized to this point. And it was... Even I awake, it was eye-opening in those moments as well. Uh, and so there isn't anybody having those conversations. And so I know it's a long answer because it's a really deep, deep, deep question you asked. Is that just even knowing this stuff, you don't even have to read the book, but just even getting mindful about what's happening to our kids, you can actually guide them in, in ways of social pressures, norms. That FOMO you talked about, is it's a bigger deal than we imagine. Yeah, so I appreciate you kind of framing the problem and... I think we're all nodding our heads like, yep, yep, I recognize that. It sounds really familiar. It's happening to me right now. What do we do about it? You're looking for the easy answers, man. There's, you have to, you, <laughs> how do you stop drinking? Take 12 steps. There's, there's your tactic, right? But in those 12 steps, you're literally finding purpose. You're finding some type of divine in intervention. You're finding all kinds of things that allow you to take one step at a time to fix your life. It all starts with just awareness. That's, that's the, there's your easy answer, man. It's, 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 this, this isn't going to get any better. I, I understand that. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, and I'm, I'm one of them that I like a roadmap, uh, or at least a compass, you know. And so if there's a, a series of steps or, you know, a try this, not that, you know, is that, is that part of it? The, uh, there's 15 steps in the book. Uh, and the first step is building the discipline to even appreciate 
the challenge that you face. Yeah. Uh, and so, for example, by building the discipline, there's a great article in The Atlantic that's, that the headline says, I've forgotten how to read a book. And it talks about before you actually get to the realization of why we can't read a book the way we used to read a book anymore is that one of the secrets is, is that when, when you use your mobile device and when you're, when you're switching between apps and services or when you're at work, for example, uh, we, two years ago you could focus for three minutes before you, you got a notification. Now it's 45 seconds, if not shorter. And every time you get a notification, it takes you 23 minutes of attempts to get back into the workflow that you were doing at, at, at the pace and depth you were at before that, right? And so you get 200 notifications a day. That adds up to not only incredible distraction, but essentially what you're doing is you're rewiring your brain and your body to operate in that regard. And so you get into this habit of what we call multitasking, but which, which isn't really multitasking. If you measured your caliber of output two years ago, three years ago to today, you actually notice a substantial degrade in your work. Uh, and we got into this habit of just checking the boxes of our to-do list rather than trying to be the greatest or at the best, because every aspect of how we use technology the, technology today is sort of like the trophy generation. You're rewarded every time you do or share something. You're validated. Everybody thinks you're special. And so we've all become what I call accidental narcissists. And in a loving way, of course. And the reason why I say that is because the problem is so out of hand that when you intentionally, and there's a part in the book where it says, I want you to put the book down, close your eyes, and count to 60. And it's fucking hard. It is so hard that you can't do it. Your heart, you feel weird. It's actually painful for some people because what you're essentially doing is you're fighting all of these chemicals that are usually running through your body. And ultimately where you get to in order to keep going through the book is uh, what's called the Pomodoro method. It's the most effective technique that I've found that allows you to build successfully over time. And the Pomodoro method is that little kitchen timer in uh, tomato that has 25-minute bursts of time. And I ask you to focus on a task for 25 minutes, and then you give yourself a five-minute break. And you keep a tally of how far you make it. Uh, my first time was three minutes. I reached for my phone without thinking about it and without a notification. And that's how deep it was just muscle memory. You know, it's just kind of going through that process. Uh, so you have to, at the beginning of the book, I'm teaching you how to build this rigor so that then you can go through these deeper life transforming exercises that get you really in tune with where you want your center of reference to be. But I got to tell you that just getting through that first part of the book as a writer, uh, you know, I, I, I kept tabs of how many times I broke the, the clock, how many times I reached for my phone, how many times I got a notification, how many times I was trying to multitask instead of single task. And it was just, it's, it's chaos. Yeah, we're being bombarded, you know, every second of the day. But it's just a normal, it's normal right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so then looking at those 15 steps, um, I would assume you, know, you had a breakthrough at a certain point. What, what were some of your most memorable, uh, difficult moments, you know, getting from 1 to 15? Each, each, each stage becomes increasingly harder because you're getting deeper into who you are and uh, you're really starting to examine not just you but your relationships, your accomplishments, your goals. Uh, you're really going through these exercises where uh, you're getting to the heart of why you why those aspirations that you have never get accomplished and why you actually, why we get distracted from them, uh, pun intended. I think, you know, each, each person in their own way is going to have their internal struggles. I have friends who are texting me ironically all the time that are saying, oh man, this chapter, I, I don't even know how I'm going to get through it. But, and then they get through it and they're like, I, I can't even tell you how amazing that was. For, for me, that was the values chapter. And by the time you get to the values chapter, you're really, really far ahead in, in the progress of sort of recentering your whole life, how to balance digital and physical and everything around it. And it was funny because I, I, I go through this values exercise in the book, and then I say, so were your values this, this, and this? Uh, 
because, by the way, that's what everybody says, and that's because we need to take this exercise again. And so then you go through it this much deeper, much more mindful. You're practicing all of these things that you learn, and you realize, <laughs> you know, again, it's 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 personal. But in that in that regard, I was even at that at that point in the book, I was still treating things superficially. So how did you get past that? The exercise, you know, you have to you have to build the discipline to get get to these points because we've become uncomfortable with addressing them because okay. because we have we haven't had to do that. So is this a journey that's better off done solo or is it better done with a support group or you know a partner and you know I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I will tell you that uh, I I think it could be both. I went through it solo obviously cuz I had to write it. Uh, but when I finished it I realized that that the book was bigger than me. The whole concept of having a manual for life today uh, is, isn't anything I wanted to hold on to by myself. So I immediately went, after the book went into production, I immediately went back into production and hired a team of, of educators to put it into coursework. One, for universities, so that we're giving them the course tools, yeah. the tools so that they can teach their students. Because uh, you know whether you're a student, you're trying to do homework or whatever, you're, everybody's distracted. And then I also realized that I could go after facilitators for corporate corporations because of productivity. And so I, I'm building the materials for that right now. And then also I figured that one market I really wanted to plug into is life coaches uh, because they're already working with people to find ways to enhance their lives. And so we're, we're almost done with the materials for life coaches. And so I. I I don't know the answer to that, but I, what I hope is that you could go through it individually because I'm an introvert, and I, even, even if I didn't write it, I would want to go through it by myself first. I'm going through it again and again and again as a reader, and I do find the need for support groups, and I do find the need for creating a community around the experience of com- you know, growing together because then yeah. that's, that's, that's deep stuff. Just like anybody who goes through a 12-step program, uh, they, they have friends for life. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it logically, you know, like, uh, if if you live with someone or you have a family, you know, um, you could set perimeters like not bringing your cell phone to the dinner table or, you know, when you go to bed at night, you leave the phone in a little pocket outside the door or something like that. I would assume that's better done together than trying to fight a solo battle with someone who's not on the same lot page. Of great, a lot of great stories pouring in from people who are practicing, coming up with their own techniques like that, yeah. for example, putting the phone away, keeping the phone outside of the bedroom. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, is the, the beautiful part about it, is that all, all I'm doing is helping you have the conversation, right? But I, I, I'll tell you one of the things that I was inspired by, because I, I'm still continuing to research the effects of this, all of this stuff on kids. Uh, and how to bring kids and parents closer together. So I think the next, the next set of materials that I'm going to create are specifically for parents. So let's impart a little advice, and let's put it under three different contexts. Um, one, to individuals. You know, what's your best advice about sort of scaling your life or life scaling? Uh, the second one is, you know, if you are running a business or you're part of a brand, you're a company, an organization, a director of marketing, whatnot. And then maybe let's do a parental, some parental advice. Well, the individual side of things is that as crazy as these times are, they're also wonderful times in that we've been given access to one of, one of the sayings I, I, I read uh, in, in Tristan Harris's work was that we were given the, uh, the capabilities of gods without the wisdom. And so that means that we need the wisdom. And it's not just enough to go through the journey. I... I want, I want to inspire you to realize that we need more voices of folks who can help other people, not just understand that they have a challenge, but to guide them uh, and help create a much more informed society of people who are original and truly individual and truly creative because the definition of creativity is ideas that have value. And right now what we have, I hate to say it, but right now what we have is a society of mediocrity. Right? So everybody has access to the same filters. Everybody has access to the same tools to make everything look and sound really amazing. And when you have that, then what you create is a barrier of just average. And so now what we all need is help 
breaking through that and being our true best selves, living our true best lives because of people like you who help one another recognize where we are and where we can be. And so that, that's why I can't do this alone. And that's why I'm giving away all of the tools to try to just inspire a group of people to not just help themselves, but just help their loved ones and help people that they care about and even go beyond that. Uh, in the business context, which is maybe we should have started there because it's like, man, let's go change the world. And now let's talk business. Uh, well, but, you know, th those are commingling like never before, right? They used to be silos. And now um, doing the right thing, doing good for the community, for the environment, for, for people. I, at least personally, I just have seen this shift in mindset where people are a lot more mindful of people and the humanity and the importance of their team and, and, and recognizing, you know, people for what they are, that, you know, their company is really just made up of all these great people. And if those people went away, then the company would be nothing. Um, and so I think this message could only just enhance that. But Well, that you, you just gave a great answer. It's <laughs> actually really good. Uh, the thing that I, I always said uh, before even this book, going back several books, was that we live in a time where people are becoming brands and brands are becoming people. And in there is an incredible polarization. Right? So we do have on one side people who do recognize that these are wonderful times to help one another, that wonderful times to have a positive effect on society and the planet and every aspect of it. And there's a whole different group of people who don't want to hear any of that. Uh, and so the way, I, the way I see it is that we, there has to be a bridge builder. One side is not going to build bridges anywhere. right? Uh, so in order to do that, we have to take a step back and to realize that there's mutual value in everything that we do. And while, while it doesn't always have to be extreme in meaning one side or the other, that we can all move in a particular direction that's good for us and we can communicate that in, in, in a way that's, that we can all hear. Cognitive biases aside, you know, that pierce right through that. Uh, and that, that's through value and that's through assistance and that's through uh, attaining shared aspirations. And that, that I will be completely honest. The hard part about that is that the onus falls on the person trying to do the better part for the for whatever it is, because the other person is the one that needs help. Whether they're too distracted and and chaotic as the customer when they go to the customer when the customer goes through their journey, for example, they carry so much stress and so much anxiety that there's actually anger in a lot of the touch points that exist today. So as a business, just simply helping someone accomplish what they're trying to do, knowing that they're multitasking and they're feeling and they're doing all of these things, just yeah. simplifying user experience, for example, is one easy way a business can enhance the journey. At the same time, I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing bold advertising from like Nike and, and, and uh, other companies that are taking a firm stand on what they feel is right in the world. And that's, and that's one way too. But I think that the real thing about all of this is that there's little value that can be delivered. There's little relief that can be de delivered in how you talk, how you click, uh, how you communicate, how you sell. Everything about how we do business today could be reinvented. I mean, just think about the fact that you still have to call an 888 or an 800 number to your cable company or your phone provider. And before you do that, you have to like go to yoga so that you can not stress out and freak out when the other person has to transfer you 20 times. Yeah. I mean, just things as commonsensical as that would make everything much better. Can we go into um, personal branding and you know branding in general as a topic um, as we kind of turn the corner and wrap things up? But you know, personal branding, it's something that we do as a production company a lot. So we will go out there and help someone shape their personal brand or you know, if it's, a, if it's a celebrity or someone who wants to build a brand around their, what they do, whether they're, you know, a fashionista or if they're a musician or whatever. Uh, and then we're also helping brands do the same kind of thing. So what's your best practices advice for people building the brand? So what, what are we doing wrong right now? Is it that we're, we're too obsessed with just capturing what's in front of us? Or is it we're doing it inauthentically? Or what are we doing wrong? I'm, yeah, man, I, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I come from a time when, when everything was authentic, or at least tried to be. Uh, and then, or at least I came from a place, not from a time, because that, just things were different back then. 
Uh, so I, I don't know because everything that I think shouldn't work when anytime you launch a YouTube video and there's some, some new personal brand who's selling you something and they got a Ferrari in the garage and a whiteboard behind them, you know, that shouldn't work, but it works. So I, I honestly don't know. But the only advice I can share is the advice that I constantly tell myself. Well, let me go down on that, oh. you know. Oh, that road a little bit, which is, you're right, it works, but it only works for a certain segment of the people. You know, those of us who see it for what it is, know what it is, and we can put our finger on it and go, oh, that's that. The guy's, you know, taking a bath in $100 bills, or uh, he has, you know, every exotic car in his garage, and I understand what's happening. You know, those of us who are adults can identify those things because they're fairly obvious, but it doesn't work for everyone. I mean, it doesn't work for me. I see right through that. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'm answering my own question by saying, if you decide to go down the low road or the lowest common denominator to appeal to that audience, that's what you get, right? Well, yeah, look, hey, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hopeless optimist, and I will say this. Everybody has their market, and there's a whole ecosystem that helps people like that find people who need people like that. And there's, yeah. a, there's, there's all kinds of algorithms. There's all kinds of hacks uh, and, and they work. And yeah. look, and they're, and they're successful in their own right. I think the best advice I have, and you, you kind of brought this up at the beginning of the conversation, every time I write a book or every time I pick a new research topic, I am going through the onerous task of reinventing myself because it wasn't just about being a personal brand. It, it was because I identified a place that lacked value or insight or direction or meaning or explanations or paths or frameworks. Because maybe there was a lot of superficial talk or a lot of buzz or a lot of trend or maybe just too technical and not enough empathetic approaches. So every time, I don't approach it from a personal, stand, a personal branding standpoint. It has always been driven by trying to help people by listening to the questions that they're asking, seeing where I think the road is going and trying to build bridges for people in, in the way that only I know how to do, which is just be me. And so, for example, if you said, hey, what's your techniques for how to write an exceptional book or write an exceptional blog post? I would have to think about it. I would have to go back and figure it out because all I'm trying to do is help someone and doing it the way that I know how to do it. And that's through research and that's through writing and that's through talking. And even I have to learn new tricks and new platforms and new capabilities every single time so that I can reach people that I didn't reach before. So I'm the one sort of changing my personal brand every single time be, just as a matter of necessity because I'm trying to deliver help to people I think need it. You're the experiment, your own experiment in your own laboratory. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting, but I think the key word to that is if you really, if you really care and you really want to be relevant and help people achieve what they're trying to achieve, then it's not really personal branding, right? And it's not really driven by vanity metrics at that point. It's about creating a movement and it's about building a community where being a part of the community is what matters. And that, that's the best I got. That's what still gets me up every single morning. And I'll tell you, going through this, this life scale journey personally, I've, I've recognized that there's even more things that we need to talk about. There's even more things that we need to do. And there's even more possibilities to be more creative and innovative. There's ways to reinvent our, 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 our education system in ways that train the brain the way it's evolved, not the way that it was. There's ways to train employees in the way that their brains are not the way that HR, which I say stands for human resistance, uh, used, used to operate. Uh, there are so many possibilities in the world today that don't necessarily have their guides or their personal brands or, or their solutions because we're so caught up in all this other stuff. But I, I, see a, I, see real, I see a real opportunity to build a greater community of people who have true positive impact on the world by reinventing it the way a startup would tackle something. Okay, so final thoughts, words of advice to those of us who are parents or thinking about becoming parents. Uh, you know... It's like that old adage, you know, lead, lead by example. Uh, but I, I think what I've learned, especially as a parent, is that I mean, if I could just be real for a minute, you know, because uh, you're asking, this is a, these are deep questions that you're asking. Uh, we all grew up, I'd, I'd like to think pretty much the same way. 
we were taught standards by our parents, and they were taught their standards by their parents, and so forth and so on. And they all had the same sort of common theme around what happiness looked like, what success looked like, what life stages were supposed to look like. And so if you think about it, we would judge people by whether they were married, how they dated, how they practiced religion, how many kids they had, when they had those kids, what the quality and the level of education all of those children had, how many cars are in your garage, how many, whatever it is, right? Uh, I think what we're all starting to realize and why I think a lot of this technology, technology appeals to two, two sides of us. And one of the subconscious sides of, of us that it really appeals to is this sense of, of exploitation and experience of things that we might not have otherwise had access to. So you think about it, you're tasting the same types of experiences that a celebrity might taste, right? Like you have followers, people are responding to you every time you create or you do or you share something. And it's intoxicating and it's incredible. And so we're actually getting to see slices of life that our parents and their parents and their parents really didn't necessarily have to see. And what happens is, is that you get exposed to other aspects of what happiness could be. It's, 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 it's user-defined. What success could be? Well, it turns out that that's user-defined as well. And so we've been given this great democracy, maybe too great of a democracy, of information and power and opportunity that things like happiness and things like success are open to reinterpretation. And that's what I've learned. And that's the journey that I went on, is that you each get to define that for yourself once you're mindful and ready to just say, ah, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of, the, one of the things that I went through is that I, I, uh, I wasn't the best student growing up. And my parents really th threw a lot of pressure on me to be this idea of who I was supposed to be based on the standards of not just their ideals, but also my mom's brothers and sisters who believe that that's supposed to, she's got to show me to them and like, like I'm a trophy. And, and uh, I, I think my first series of success was sort of in spite of all of that. Uh, but I fell into the trap of what their standards for success were. You know, you got to buy a house, and then I got to buy the best car, and then I have to buy the best watch, and then I have to buy the best pen. And suddenly, one of the things, one of the exercises in the book was, uh, how many of you have way too many tabs open on your browser? Right? Okay, so pretty much all of us, right? We do that in life, too. We all, in real life, have way too many tabs open. We all have stuff in our garage, in our drawers, in our closets, that are just browser tabs. And all but I of, might need it someday, Brian. Exactly. I all, might use it. All of that is a cognitive load that we carry every single day that tax your human resources, just like your open tabs tax your system resources. So all of that stuff that we have is just because we think we're supposed to have it. Uh, but once you free yourself of this mental clutter, this physical clutter, all of these things, like this is just one of the exercises in your book. You, you, you breathe. It's incredible. And so I guess the advice is, is that there are so many things that we live to in terms of standards today that actually aren't part of real happiness. Happiness is actually inside each and every one of us right now. And it's not a place that we're going to get to. It's not, it's not anything to do with what we're going to have when we get to this place or when we have this in our life. It's actually in us right now. We just choose not to let it out or not to breathe it or not to accept it. And so the advice that I have is just press pause, just breathe. You don't need to see what someone else is sharing right now. You don't need to define your life about what someone else is doing right now because I can tell you 100% that they are incredibly unhappy and unsatisfied with their life as well and that we're all just trying to figure this out. And the minute you connect with that, it's empowering and it's life-changing. And once you breathe that in and once you indulge it and once you give yourself permission to keep taking another step down that path, it's contagious, and you start to change how other people see you and then how other people see themselves. And the minute that happens, we've got a community. And the minute that community gets bigger, we have a movement. And the minute that we have a movement, we have a life, a society that is going to not just get this planet back on track, but get everything in a place for our children and their children in ways that define what the future looks like and not have to live it based on standards that are outdated.
I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather.